You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I am having a really great time here at Asbury. I never would have thought that I would be trying to bust out of escape rooms with you guys. We didn't bust out of the escape room. Trying to bust out of escape rooms or going to intramural games or playing laser tag here in Hughes. And yet that's what I'm doing. And I am loving every most minutes of it. I'd like for you to imagine, if you would, that moment when you're having the perfect day. Everything has been an avenue of green lights. The meeting that happens every week that you just dread got canceled. The exam went better than you thought. The food in the calf was top-notch. Everything's been great, and now you're lying peacefully in bed, ready to go to sleep, and then all of a sudden, without any notice or warning, your mind flashes back to that embarrassing moment that happened to you in middle school. Or to that joke that you made last week that sounded really good in your head, but that when you said it, no one really seemed to get it, so you just looked like an idiot? Have you had those moments? Moments that just come into your mind so unwelcome, and that no matter how much you go, you know, you can't seem to shake them out? Moments that if we had maybe a memory loss pill that could selectively wipe out 30-second chunks of your life that you would use without second thought? One author gave this phenomenon a name. She called these cringe attacks. They're like panic attacks, or in her words, the little humiliations from your past that come back unbidden, sometimes years after they first occurred. Now, cringe attacks might be a new name, but I don't think they're a new thing. In fact, I might argue that our reading for today follows a very similar pattern even if it is a far more ancient text. You see, at first glance, Psalm 95 looks like it's heading in a predictable direction. We open with all of this loud, clanging praise, just like many of our worship services today. Listen to all the commands. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us come before him in thanks, with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And there are these beautiful, rich metaphors to portray God. In verse 1, he is our steady and strong rock. In verse 3, God is our just and mighty king. In verse 7, God is our gentle and wise shepherd. The psalmist wants us to celebrate the God who reigns over the universe, the same God who is inviting God's people to worship. It's all positive, praiseworthy, worshipful. And then the psalmist has a cringe attack. Flashbacks to those 40 years in the wilderness. God's voice rumbles out, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. There's a dramatic change in tone here. The music score changes from a major key to a minor key. 
the camera yanks away from this awesome revival service to a couple of very, very dark moments in Israel's history. And when I read this psalm, I feel very confused and caught off guard. Because just a few verses earlier, God was this great and loving creator. And now God is an angry and stormy judge. If you took OT100, you should have gotten a, a briefing on what happened in the wilderness. But in case you haven't taken that class yet, or if you did and then just forgot everything after the final exam, I will give you the cliff notes. The whole exodus from Egypt thing was going very well, but then things started to take a turn for the worst. The Israelites became impatient and melted their own jewelry to make a substitute god. Moses had multiple temper tantrums. Moses' sister Miriam was cursed with leprosy after she badmouthed Moses. A wannabe priest tried to stage a coup against high priest Aaron, and the text literally says that his clan was swallowed up by the earth. These are the memories that God is conjuring in the worshippers' collective imagination. All of a sudden, God takes the worshippers on a guilt trip. And we thought maybe the Israelites made a vow to never talk about what happened again. It was a whole, you know, what happens in the wilderness stays in the wilderness situation. But no, Psalm 95 readily dredges up these very cringy moments straight from God's memory vault. So Psalm 95 might not have everything we want. We might prefer if it ended at verse 7. That way we don't have to feel guilty. Guilt is never a good motivator, especially in a gospel context. As Christians, we believe and celebrate that God in Christ has forgiven our sins, made real by the work of the Holy Spirit. Yay! So being reminded of our past failures can leave a bitter taste in our mouths. If you're having an argument with a roommate, it's never wise to bring up a past mistake just to twist the knife. But if that's unfair on a human plane, then why does God get to do that? Maybe we're not reading the psalm as it was meant to be read. You see, we often treat the book of Psalms as if it's a praise book. And there are certainly praise in the book of Psalms, but I find it interesting that the majority of Psalms, around 70% of them, are actually categorized as lament. The Psalms are meant to speak to every raw human emotion that we will experience. John Calvin, one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, referred to the Psalms as an anatomy of the soul, because for Calvin, there is not a single emotion under the sun that the Psalms do not reflect like a mirror. Similarly, Ambrose, the fourth century bishop, referred to the Psalms as a gymnasium for the soul, a place where we go for a spiritual workout. And if there were any psalm that could offer us an intense spiritual workout, it would definitely be Psalm 95. Because notice that the psalm doesn't find much resolution. It doesn't end on a happy, you know, but God still loves us note. In fact, the last verse is rather ominous, and it sounds more like a veiled threat. It's, I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Awkward. You know, what about that whole love is patient, love is kind, love never fails stuff that we find in the New Testament? 
If someone tried to adapt Psalm 95 as a movie, it would have a terrible plot because, as any good writing or media comm major could tell us, we expect a good plot to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Is this right? I'm not a media comm major, but I'm assuming beginning, middle, and end is a universal concept. Unfortunately, though, there's no end to this psalm. We just leave stuck in the middle. I actually think, though, that this tension gives us a clue into how worship works. But first, it's probably helpful to clear up what I mean when I'm using that very vexing term, worship. Worship is a sticky term, and it gets us into a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of trouble. I realize that you don't know a lot about me, and therefore what I think about worship, but my job title has the word worship in it, so I figure I probably owe you something. Often, we don't let worship become more than we want. But I do hope that we can think about worship more deeply. So let's just say a few things. Just, I don't have a lot of time to talk about them, but we'll go first. First of all, I think worship is more than music. We get very tempted to make music and worship synonymous. And music is a very, very important part of worship. But if that's the only part of worship, then it doesn't leave us much room for other important acts, like prayer, preaching, scripture, or sacraments. Worship is also more than an offering of praise. Sometimes we invoke the Hebrew and the Greek translations of the word worship to say, well, all we need to do in worship is just bow down or ascribe worth to God. And that's fine and good, but it's still rather vague and narrow. Because if we just praise in worship, then it doesn't leave room for other emotions, like fear or lament. And thirdly, worship is more than a way of life. We do certainly live lives of worship, yes, but if we only view it as a way of life, then what happens here in chapel and in church, what we call corporate worship, doesn't really count for much. Now, these perspectives that I just mentioned aren't bad in themselves, but by themselves. Because by themselves, they do not allow us to think and talk about worship more deeply. But how worship works is more important than how worship looks. So to have deeper conversations about worship, we do need to challenge ourselves to move past these shallow and cliche metaphors. Now, there's one more metaphor that really, it gets me, and I spend a lot of time thinking about it. It's when we talk about worship as a performance. You know, we talk about the band that's performing here on the stage. And the glaring problem, number one, that you can find from most scholars is that the term performance is relatively passive. We come to watch and sit through a performance rather than participate in something. So one Christian philosopher attempted to redeem this metaphor. Kierkegaard said, okay, well, maybe worship is a performance, but we're not audience members. We're actually the performers. And we're not performing, you know, for other people. We're actually performing for God. And by making God the audience, the idea becomes that we're performing for an audience of one. I'm sure that you've heard something like this before. And while I think it is a little closer, I still think that it's somewhat deficient because we can't really limit God's role in worship to that of a mere spectator. God initiates and receives worship, yes, 
but God also actively participates in worship. More than that, a performance assumes that everything is perfect and polished. All the blocking is smooth, all the lines are delivered in a flawless cadence. The space, the lighting, the musicians are award-worthy. It seems problematic, then, to compare our raw, unpredictable faith journeys to that of a stilted, scripted performance. So I've been learning lately that perhaps it's wiser to view worship not as a performance, but as a rehearsal, a place where we practice the moves of faith. In worship, we learn to be more like Jesus. We, in Paul's words, literally work out our salvation. Those who join in a worship service are not passive spectators of a performance, but sweaty participants in a rehearsal. Everyone here, not just loads of us up here on the stage, become method actors who practice putting on Christ. And we use props. We use chipped podiums, worn-out Bibles, slightly out-of-tune instruments, ordinary items that are holograms of what is to come. And a rehearsal means that we can sometimes, believe it or not, be bad actors. We mess up our role, we forget our lines, we lose track of the plot, we become divas who think we're too good for this part, or we become discouraged when we can't get all the moves right. You know what this looks like. You know, we don't like that song or hymn, so we cross our arms and we stick up our nose and we, and we don't sing along. We pulled an all-nighter last night, so we have trouble focusing on the prayer, you know, that prayer that's just going a bit too long. We have a big test or meeting during chapel, so we tune out during the sermon and take a little me time, uh, an eagle hour, if you would. In rehearsals, things go wrong, but that's actually okay. As Melanie Ross says, in worship, we play the role of both saint and sinner. So we are okay when things go wrong because we know that growth happens there. So viewing worship as a rehearsal frees us from those traps of performance-based faith. It recognizes that we do not need to be our perfect selves to worship. In fact, we cannot be our perfect selves without the sanctifying grace of God, which we receive when we practice faithful habits in our acts of worship. So for example, we practice cultivating a heart of holiness when we pray hard prayers, confessing our sin to God and others. We practice putting on a mind of Christ when we wrestle with the challenge made during a sermon. We practice forming hands of service when we sing songs about loving God and our neighbor as ourselves. And we practice belonging to a kingdom community when we gather at the Lord's table, gathering around a common meal that seeks to unite us rather than divide us. Okay, so why do I say all this? It all comes back to Psalm 95, which might seem like a weird cringe attack, but perhaps it can remind us that all of us are always at the stage of rehearsal in our faith journeys. All of us are always at the stage of rehearsal in our faith journeys. You know, the guilt feels weird, but the psalm does follow those rhythms of trying and failing that are so endemic in our spiritual biographies. 
We are always caught between a proper posture toward a loving and benevolent God and also an improper posture of rebellion and selfishness. And no, we don't like being reminded that we've messed up our role in God's grand drama, but it is in these awkward, tense moments when we cringe at this amateur production that we're pulling off that God can do some of the most formative work in us. I attended a Christian university that also had a required chapel. And when I was a freshman, I remember a presentation given to all the new students on 10 reasons we value chapel. And I don't remember all 10 of the reasons. I remember two of the reasons. They came up on the board just like this. And number one was, it's required. And then, which was, you know, great number one. And then number two, you've got to wake up at some point. Number two has actually really stuck with me for some reason. And look, I feel like I've heard, you know, every variant of what we might call chapel propaganda. That's kind of what I felt that was, you know, as someone who was new in my faith journey. Seeing that PowerPoint come up and say, you've got to wake up at some point, boy, it felt kind of like propaganda. And I hear, you know, I heard a lot of chapel propaganda when I was at that school, and I really hated it then. And I hear it a lot now that I work in chapel administration. And between you and me, I still hate it. But what I'm saying to you today is not really chapel propaganda. We're not trying to force you to worship. I can't force you to worship. It just doesn't work that way. And if you do have concerns with chapel, please come talk to me, come talk to us, because we are always happy to hear them. But I am inviting us to view worship in general and chapel in particular through a more generous lens. You see, we often view chapel as a problem to be solved. How do we make chapel more relevant, more theological, more practical? And you might ask yourself, well, how do I get the most out of the 50 minutes that I have here in Hughes? But rather than viewing it as a problem to be solved, what if we viewed chapel and worship as a gift of time to be gratefully accepted? I want chapel to be a gift for you so that we can be a community that pursues faithful and formative worship together. So what if we saw this place of worship as a rehearsal studio, a practice room, a spiritual dojo, a place where God invites anyone, no matter how practiced you are in faith? What if chapel were a place where God welcomes Psalm 95 worshipers who come ready to offer either immense praise, immense pain, or anything in between. Worship has the capacity to form us. So what if chapel were a place to be formed together more into the community that God wants to make us? I truly believe that corporate worship at its best is an opportunity for us to practice the choreography of faith. As Barbara Brown Taylor says, worship is the ongoing practice of faith. And not only the practice, but the actual experience of it. We practice the patterns of our life together before God, rehearsing them until they become second nature to us. That's how worship works. 
It is practice becoming perfect, a rehearsal for the day when Jesus returns and fully restores us back into the glorious whole image that he intended for us at the beginning. So the things that we do right now in worship, these rituals and liturgies, are slowly but surely shaping us to act more like the people God made us to be. But don't misunderstand me here. Be careful not to fall into the trap of, well, if that's true, all I need to do is worship harder, pray longer, lift my hands higher, raise a hallelujah louder. No, it doesn't work like that. Because the Holy Spirit meets us in worship and joins us, praying for us when we can't bear to utter another word to God, singing for us when we can't believe in the lyrics, thinking for us when we can't figure out what the word is saying. And God's Spirit is perfecting our worship even now. But the work of the Holy Spirit is not an excuse to go on spiritual autopilot and assume that life transformation is going to happen automatically. It's also not an excuse to work yourself to nothing trying to meet Jesus. But when we faithfully and earnestly seek God's transforming grace, there is this delicate dynamic of us partnering with God and God partnering with us. In the Wesleyan tradition, there's a very fancy theological term for it. It's called synergism. Without the help of the Spirit, we are just going through the same motions, singing the same songs, saying the same prayers, and leaving the same way. But with the Holy Spirit's active participation, prompting and perfecting what we do here in Hughes, worship becomes God's tool for spiritual formation. And we say that this is formation on the way to glorification. You see, worship catches us between who we are now and who God is making us to be. And this is a tension that grace beautifully inhabits. Shannon Craig O'Snell refers to this as our doubleness. As worshipers on this side of eternity, the journey of becoming like Jesus is very difficult. It has bumps on the road. It's cringy at times. It is, as Eugene Peterson calls it, a long obedience in the same direction. We might prefer to think of the Christian life as a perfect straight shot up to heaven. You know, we accept Jesus and then everything gets better from there. We often find that the opposite happens. We experience more loss, more pain, more suffering. And we wonder if this Jesus thing was even worth it. If that's you today, let me offer you some freeing words. Grace is available for you wherever you are at. Grace is available for you wherever you are at. And in worship, this God of grace is actually meeting us at our best and at our worst. And during the season of Lent, we come face to face with our deficiencies as followers of Jesus. And Psalm 95 warns us of these failures not to make us feel unnecessarily ashamed, but as a way to prevent us from lapsing into these deforming habits all over again. And as we practice the moves of faith, God's Spirit is helping us become more like Jesus, the one we are imitating. To say it in a crude way, we fake it till we make it. 
We participate in the world and the life that God has promised us, but yes, we mess up. Still, just as the rebellious Israelites eventually learned, God is ready to forgive us, strengthen us, and sanctify us with abundant grace. I've been saying a lot of very meta stuff, so let me get very specific. I recognize that because of this tension between who we are and who God is making us to be, each one of us arrives to chapel in different places. We all have a unique burden on our hearts, a distinct set of words that we long to express before God. Some of us here have experienced an unexpected financial gift or an answer to prayer in the form of a job offer, and we want to say, thank you, God. That's praise. Others of us here feel burdened by the weight of drama and pain in the world and in our own lives, or we feel convicted by the bitterness that we are harboring towards someone else, and we long to cry out, Lord, I'm sorry. That's confession. Some of us are stuck in a toxic relationship or experiencing unending pain from a chronic illness, and we want to say, why, God? Let's lament. Still, others of us are depressed, lonely, fighting temptation, or questioning our faith, and we need to say, God, help me. Let's petition. Wherever you are at, there is space for you to belong in our worship. We want to create room for all your prayers to be expressed in some way, so that your rehearsal includes a balanced regime of praise, confession, lament, and petition. These are the basic moves of a spiritual workout that Psalm 95 asks us to practice. You might not think that you are a good enough worshiper to join us in chapel. You may not call yourself a Christian and wonder if you can even belong here. On the other hand, maybe you think you're too good of a worshiper to join us in chapel. You've grown up in church, you've had the big altar moments, and you wonder if there's anything more that we can give you that you haven't gotten already. And I'm no exception. There are days I come to chapel and think, well, I've got the worship degrees, the worship experience, so I must be the worship superstar. And there are other days when I come in and think, what an idiot I am. There's no way God wants to hear one word of prayer from me. So believe me when I say this. You can belong here. You can believe here. You can become like Jesus here. Still, Psalm 95 warns us that this worship thing won't be perfect. There will be moments when we have spiritual cringe attacks. But cringe attacks can be opportunities to humble ourselves. As the psalmist knows, we will always face the reminder that we are not perfect worshipers and we still have faults that God needs to work on. I'm indebted to worship scholars such as Matthew Meyer Bolton, who remind me that worship is not only the site of God's greatest work, but also the site of humanity's greatest failure. And we might like to think that worship occurs in a pure, sinless environment, but when humans take worship into their own hands apart from God, disaster ensues. But we have Jesus, who became human and who participated in worship in order to redeem it. Jesus, God in the flesh, attended worship services and then showed us how to worship. Jesus offered prayers and then gave us prayers to pray. 
Jesus offered sacrifices and then gave the once and for all sacrifice of himself on the cross for the sake of the world. As Melanie Ross puts it so well, Christ has shown us that what is rehearsed in the theater of faith and enacted through the medium of flesh is a love that is willing to endure all things. So with thankful hearts, we celebrate this good news that our amateur efforts at this worship thing, when performed in the name of the Son and perfected by the Holy Spirit, will become a holy and acceptable offering to God our Father. Love never fails. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you that in Jesus, we see what great love you have lavished on us, that we should be called your children. We admit, though, that there are times when it seems like your love is not enough for the many needs and problems that we face. So right now, as we play back the video of our past few days and weeks, hear us as we bring to mind and silently lift to you those recent moments when we have felt far from your love. Glory to you, O God, for you have come near to us in the incarnation of your Son. And in Jesus, we see and have everything that we need, all the grace that abounds for us wherever we are at. So by your Spirit, help us to notice that. Help us to receive that. Help us to be new people who are changed by your grace that comes to us even when our rehearsals of being human turn into a cringeworthy failure. Your love never fails. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, like God's people say, would you stand as we respond to God's word and song?